Good morning. That okay? That better? Close. Me or the mic? Okay, here we go. My name is Neil Austin. I've been coming to faith probably 20 years or so. And about that long ago, I was neighbor to uh, Ron Dunbar, so I can testify to the fact that he does have a house, actually. <laughs> a good neighbor. Uh, Ron actually uh, baptized me. Good man. I'm happy to share with you this morning a reading from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 33. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides the women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat. And he walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Thank you, Neil. Might have thought it was a little bit strange that we went to another passage of Scripture as a, uh, instead of John 6, where we will be teaching from this morning. But as I said last week, this uh, series of miracles between the feeding of what we refer to as the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water, those are the two miracles that are recorded in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, 
Luke and John. And so we said we should pay special attention to these because um, all four writers thought it relevant to the, the angle they were taking or the point they were making in sharing the information they shared as they wrote their gospel accounts to emphasize these stories to make sure they all included them. And uh, each gospel writer, they are not contradictory um, pieces of information or stories, but they are emphasizing a various point or speaking to a particular audience. And so certain stories aren't quite as relevant to their topic at hand. So some will omit certain uh, details or some will omit certain stories altogether. And we've been looking particularly at John's gospel and uh and hearing the uh the, the passage that Neil so aptly read for us today, we saw a, a few different details than what we heard last week. And next week we'll hear, Lord willing, another passage from one of the other gospels to again give us another layer of understanding of what's going on in this particular miracle. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about the breaking of bread or the multiplication of the bread or the feeding of the multitudes. Instead, we put ourselves in the audience. We put ourselves in the crowd to ask the question, who would I be if I was witnessing all of these things? If I saw or heard that Jesus was capable of doing all these things, would my interest or participation in the crowd be, as we're going to see from this crowd, largely selfishly driven that maybe he can do that thing for me or maybe we can just see a good show maybe maybe the momentum and all of the the energy of the crowd was what uh, drew so much interest in just seeing or being a part of the thing that we'll be able to tell our grandkids about was part of the draw so we had to ask ourselves do we see in this crowd a similarity in this this uncovered materialism of our hearts we spent a lot of time talking about the material world that we were born in and that we depend on and the caution was that searching for a material jesus to only meet our material needs will leave us disappointed simply because he doesn't exist Jesus doesn't do what he does, go where he goes, say what he says, just to make our lives on this earth better. I know we we sometimes can fall into that trap a little bit of thinking like what's in it for me mindset. And so the more savvy leaders, people that know their way around these scriptures and things and can manipulate it will present only that aspect of Jesus making your existence in so many different ways more comfortable for you. And that becomes an attraction all of its own because he's got the power to do it. He's done it for some. Why couldn't he do it for me? Why couldn't he do it for you? So it matters how we come to Jesus. But spoiler alert, we all come to him selfishly. It's who we are. It's how we were born. It's it's the curse of the sin that's in us that we come to him saying, what can you do for me? And if and, and, and it's a very short walk from there to what have you done for me lately? But we come to him selfishly because we have something that only he can solve. And that is the sin in our hearts. So we're drawn to him because of his power and his ability. And he did these demonstrations and miracles to show that he was capable and the only authority to heal us of our sin and forgive us of our sin. So we come to him selfishly, but the challenge is, do we fall away like this crowd will eventually fall away when we see this later in the chapter because he hasn't done it again over and over and over in more showy sort of miraculous ways or ways in which my material heart wants to see him show up. 
Today, materialism is a little bit different. I see this creeping up more in the terms of uh, the, the battle that we wage with a world philosophy or the, the, the way that you and I uh, slip into this materialism of what can Jesus do for me or what has he done late me, lately. It's not so much that I see a lot of people saying, I hope he gives me a million bucks or I hope he pays off my student loans or something like that. It's, it's more along the lines of the psychological comfort that we're we're looking for that we think Jesus or his church or his people can provide because we have such a broken world and there's so many needs and we're so hungry for someone to just say nothing to be afraid of or you're okay, you're doing all right or something like that, that we just crave it and we long for it so much that the new materialism, if you will, is more like the psychological comfort that we think that Jesus can bring us. Our epidemic of loneliness or rejection or we're afraid of things or we're confused by all the things that we see or the things that we don't see happening. So can Jesus give me life balance? Can he center, you know, my chi? Can he, can he give me to where I'm, I'm actually feel complete and whole inside so he becomes a part of like my, my well-balanced diet and my, my spending plan and all these kinds of my retirement savings and I have Jesus fitting into one of those slices of the pie? It, it may sound a little funny, but that's really sort of the functional Christianity even that we see from so many people that have said they're followers of Christ. That maybe he gives us that life balance or maybe he gives me that pat on the back, that appreciation or that recognition recognition that my heart has been longing for because of what I didn't have in my upbringing or what happened to me along the way or something. Maybe Jesus is going to do all those things. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about those things. And it's certainly we're going to see on display that he's got the power to deal with those things. The question is on us. If he doesn't deliver in the way that we want him to, then what do we make of him? James says it like this. He warns us in in chapter four of his writing. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Okay, so that's us. Don't I get credit for asking the right person? Don't I get credit for going to him saying, I believe you can do something about it. We, we see this from the crowd that there's a, an underlying belief. At least there's some level of faith. The reality is, is we all exercise belief and faith. Our challenge, especially today, is that we treat belief and faith as the end of the path. If you just believe, we hear it all the time. And our kids are seeing it all the time on their screens and hearing it in the mantra and everything that somehow just having the capacity for belief is all that you need so that we can fill in the blank. Well, what are you going to believe in myself, my efforts, or that this world's going to get better or something like just have faith and hang on and it all work itself out, right? We see from this crowd the capacity to believe. Go check this out. We just heard what he did in the last city. Let's go follow him. And in the throngs, the thousands upon thousands, there's estimated there's 15 to 20,000 people building this crowd. I know it says there's 5,000, but it refers to just the men in this thing. And that's got more to do with how they recorded things then. But there's probably 15-ish thousand people. So there's a belief that something's about to happen. So we have to be careful not to make just the capacity to believe, uh, to believe the be-all, end-all. It's what we're believing and who we ascribe authority for that belief is what counts. Do I believe, for the sake of believing, that my life's going to get better, that the gospel's going to scratch all my itches, check all my boxes? 
or is there something else? The heavier weight of this calling and all that Jesus has promised us is that it's not supposed to be all rosy. That this doesn't necessarily just improve with our time on this earth. The the gospel tells us, Jesus is going to tell us in a few chapters from now, to remember the word that he said to us, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. He's saying this to a much smaller audience by now. Paul backs this up in Philippians 1. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, I don't say this as somebody who gloats about it and say, oh, you Christians, you're in for a surprise. You thought it was just going to get better, but there's suffering involved and you better like it. I don't like it either. I, I wish I didn't know these references sometimes. And as I'm kind of putting this together, I'm like, yeah, but then there's that and then there's this and, and it's convicting and it's scary, isn't it? Cause you're, you're supposed to just walk into this stuff bravely, but there's a part of you that says nobody really wants to go out of their way and suffer just to prove they can handle it or they can hack it or that they're holy enough for it. Once you receive it, you start to go, what was I asking for? This isn't easy to do. But it is a part of the promise, and we have to keep this in mind, is that the undercurrent of our march forward as we walk this life of Christ is that there is going to be promised persecution and suffering. In order for what to take place, we studied the end of last year, First Peter, and in right away, Peter wasted no time encouraging us In chapter 1, when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be. Now think about all the things that we're going to get as a result of following Jesus. He caused us to be born again to a living hope, which is in short supply now, right? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We just saying we believe in the resurrection and that resurrection is for us. We will rise again. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is, listen to this list, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Everything we know on this earth perishes, fades, wastes away. And, and the abundant supply that we're having is a promise that Peter is telling us here is that this is an imperishable promise, an undefiled truth, an unfading glory that we're given, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the promise comes with a counterweight. The promise comes with a balance. You and I are going to expect suffering and persecution, but it lends to, it leads to a full weight of glory, a full weight of promise, a full weight of comfort. So last week we spent our time being challenged that you and I can practice to give to others rather than to take from them. Simple instruction, but basically for you and I to practice letting go of our material lives. For us to just find the simple ways that as I'm getting wrapped up in this world, it's not about me. How do I live for somebody else? How's that going? How'd you do this week? I'm taking an evaluation. I want to see how you scored. I gave you an assignment last week. How'd it go living for other people? If you're like me, you'll say, I had some good moments and some bad moments. 
or I went into something fully intending to do that and I blew it. It took just one bad reaction or one momentary slip up in circumstances and I lost my cool or I lost my focus and I didn't see it through. Is there room for you or have you failed and God just says, eh, I'm done with you. Is that what happens to us? I also challenge you to recognize that you can't abandon a material kingdom obsession by yourself. And as you share this life with other people, you're going to find that a lot of people are in that boat too. Oh, that was me. I set off with great intentions and didn't seem to work out. And then I also challenge you to ask Jesus to use your next response to the to difficulty because we said we're not done, right? We still got more coming. That's bound. We're bound for it. So if we have more difficulty coming, Lord, use my next response to whatever it is for your purposes. Rather than just focusing our prayer on, Lord, protect me from those difficulties, keep them far off my shore. Instead, it becomes more like, Lord, I know they're coming. I know you won't keep me from all of them, but you'll hold me together in them. So use my next response do something supernatural in me that I wouldn't normally do. So where does that take us? That that removes us from that fickle crowd that just started wasting away, started fading away. We're going to see in, a, in, a, in the coming weeks that Jesus is going to use some very troubling and very harsh words, if you will. Not, not picking on them, but just laying it out. This is the gospel. This is the life. And a lot of people just going, ah, that sounds weird. I'm not down for that. And so they leave. But before we get there, let's take just a little bit closer look at this crowd and then an even closer look at this miracle in the little bit of time that we have left. Our first thing I want to point off very quickly here is that the heart of people remains open to miracles. You and I, we live in what everyone claims to be a scientific age, an age of reason. And so facts matter and they rule the roost, right? Let's not forget, and I've got to make this point quickly, but a lot of apologists have, have spent a lot of time in writing in depth what all this means. Let's not forget that there's a reason why there's a crowd being built is because all of us have the capacity to still be amazed, All of us have the interest to still be wowed. Even those that are saying, if I can't explain it, I don't believe it. That just simply isn't the case. God created in us, whether you believe it or not, he created in us a capacity for wonder. And it's still exercised today, no matter what the statistics try to tell us, no matter what what the lack of God, like ripping open the sky and having his hand reach down and we can see all those things anymore and stuff. We see a lot of these things recorded in scripture and we go... It's getting harder and harder to believe that. Everything has to be backed up by this claim of science, it seems, in our lives. But the reality is we put faith and trust in things every single day that we can't explain. Moment by moment, we are practicing trust in things we can't see. We just don't really acknowledge it too readily. So even for the skeptics and unbelievers, they need to understand that they would be potentially part of this crowd as well because they have the capacity to believe. But also for the Christ follower, we see in Philip as Jesus addresses him, we heard some of this this morning already, but in our text in John 6, halfway through verse 5, Jesus says to Philip, so where are we supposed to buy bread that these people may eat? Now, Neil had shared with us that they had suggested to Jesus, let's send the crowds away. We don't have enough to take care of them. So Jesus, it's not that he doesn't hear that question. He's addressing that question by saying, hey, Philip, where can we get some bread? Verse 6 helpfully clarifies for us that he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. 
So Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even just get a little bit. Hey, Philip, you're the local here. This is your stomping grounds where we're doing all this sort of stuff. And we've got thousands upon thousands of people. I got a question for you. Is there a Dunkin' Donuts around? So Philip's going, well, you know, keep in mind, their suggestion was we don't have to worry about the crowd. We're sending them away. Wait, oh, Lord, what can I get you? I'll hit the drive through. No, Philip, I'm, I'm asking you because we've got all these people to supply. We're not going to send them away. We're going to take care of this right here and right now. Can you, you can imagine it's the crowd is roughly the size of the city of Waterville. Imagine our Dunkin Donuts over here. All of a sudden we I mean, even if we in this room just decided 300 people say, I'm just going to go and get some munchkins. They'd run out quick. It'd take a long, long time. Philip's a calculator. He knows what's going on. He's the one that we see often kind of saying things that he needs to see the hands on. He needs to see the proof of, if you will. Later on, he says, Lord, show us the father and it's enough. If we just see the father, then that's enough. Then I'm satisfied. And Jesus says, you haven't been with me long enough to realize I am he and he is me. Philip is doing the math and he's coming to the um, realistic conclusion. We can't take care of all these people. Dunkin' Donuts does not have enough munchkins because that's all we'd be able to get even if we had the equivalent in our day, twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 to take care of this. Any of the disciples have that much jangle in their pocket? We got that much going on? No. We got to figure something out. We've got to do something here. This isn't going to work. Lord, what you're asking for is an impossibility. I heard somebody say earlier this week that if the Lord wants to do something astounding, he starts with with a, a difficulty. If he wants to really blow our minds, he starts with an impossibility. This isn't just a test for Philip to to see if he knows the answer. This is a test for all of us, even if we as we read this 2000 years later to say, yeah, numerically, there's no way to pull this off. Jesus walks them to the end of reason so that he can do what he does best. See, Philip's math didn't factor in the power of Jesus. I also heard somebody else say that difficulty must always be measured by the capacity of the agent doing the work. Did you hear that? Difficulty must always be measured by the capacity of the agent doing the work. Philip had lost sight of the miracle. He had a short miracle memory. He had seen Jesus already do things that, that blew out the, the natural world that showed his, his preeminence, his superiority, if you will, over natural elements. And yet Philip isn't thinking that he can pull this off. Isn't that us? Second quick point I want to make here is that the point of miracles remains the glory of God. What Jesus is about to do is to point to him. I am who I say I am. I am who the father is pleased with. I am the one capable and powerful enough to take care of your greatest need. So in order to show this, Jesus tells everybody in verse 10, he says to them, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place so that the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. 
Jesus is going to do this on his terms. He's not backed into a corner. He's not pushed up against the wall. He's not annoyed with the people and going, oh, we got to do something to get these. Abracadabra. There we go. Now, problem solved, get out of my hair, let's go retreat to the mountain. He's not doing this. The other passages are going to help us to see that he looks over them with compassion. Jesus sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' heart aches for them. He, they've been following him for th- at least three days. And they couldn't pack enough to feed themselves for all those days. And Jesus is saying, they're starving he sees the spiritual hunger even more than the physical hunger, but he, he has a broken heart for his creation who's gone so wayward. And they're so needy of hope that they're just traversing along the land to follow him. I have compassion on the crowd, we see from Matthew's writing, or, or from Mark, like a sheep without a shepherd. You notice how Jesus performs miracles that aren't removed from people's needs? He could do the, the crazy and the spectacular, the drop of a hat, but he always couches it in, in a way that somebody's going to get some personal benefit from. Somebody's going to, to say he really cares about the details of my life. If you had those moments in your life where the, it may not be a miracle to the rest of us, but you know he showed up for you at just the right time and in just the right way. That same God who cares about that much detail is the same God who, who's going to feed 20,000 people at the drop of a hat. He did it at the the wedding when he saw that the family was going to be completely embarrassed because they were running out of wine. So he says, I'm going to save face for them. I'm going to show my power. And in the process, I'm going to make it the best stuff they've ever had. So that the couple that was hosting the wedding gets all the credit for it because it says it was a miracle done privately. Or we see from this feeding, it, it's, it solves the, the growling of the stomach. It wasn't just a, a bite like we had. It was as much as they wanted. Or when he raises Lazarus from the dead, he's got two sisters that are wailing in agony because they miss their brother. And they say, Jesus, if you'd just been here. And he says, I've got this. Is he demonstrating his power over death? Absolutely. All the theological consequence of that is amazing. But he's also mending their broken hearts. Or for the blind or the lame or even just before his capture and crucifixion where, where uh, uh, one of his disciples reaches out to protect Jesus with a sword and cuts off the soldier's ear. What does he do? He picks up the ear and Mr. Potato heads that thing right back on. <laughs> Jesus cares about those things. But you see, because the miracle was on his terms, he was going to demonstrate his compassion, but he was going to do it with order and purpose. Sit down in groups of 50 or whatever it's going to be and, and distribute this among the people and, and have as much as you want. You see the lavishness of God and his character and saying, just eat, get full. You've, you've earned it. You've taken these three days and heard some hard things. So just do it. Eat, be filled. But let nothing be wasted. We're not just throwing this stuff away. We have just as much as you need, and we're not going to overdo it. Jesus has complete control of the situation. But also, as we said, these miracles are his story. They're his revelation. And this is where the picture of bread becomes so significant. We won't get all of this exposed for us today because we get to deal with this later in the chapter when Jesus explains, the point of everything I'm doing is because I am the bread of life. But the passage that we read tells us that when he had given thanks, he he broke it and blessed it and distributed it. 
And no doubt this prayer of thanks was one of a very familiar Jewish custom and, and around the tables of Jewish families or at special occasions and in particular at the Passover, which we see playing out now. And John records three areas of or three occurrences of the Passover in his gospel. And this is, of course, one of them. So Jesus takes time and he prays the prayer, most likely, blessed are you, Lord God, spirit of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth. Nothing is done by mistake. Nothing is done without its potency and the imagery that Jesus is portraying here. So we can, we can uh, comfortably look at the, the symbols and the words and say he's making the bigger point here. Let me just quickly ask you as a drive-by guilting, how do you guys pray at your mealtimes? I, I think one of the reasons why uh, we see an established pattern of praying at mealtimes is because it's on our mind. We're going to do it most likely at least three times a day. And it's an opportunity for us to just kind of humbly acknowledge where our supplies come from, that even though we might have worked the job that might have earned the money, that might have put this on our table, that that supply isn't really from us. It's from all that the Lord has given our lives. And so it's just an opportunity to give that back to him and to humbly acknowledge that. And I got to be honest with you. I needed a little bit of um, teaching from my wife in this area. She might not know this is coming, but I remember... Because I, I mean, I also got my mom in the room, so I got to be really careful how I say this. But um, we were raised in a household that that honored, you know, these kinds of things. It was it was the kind of thing that we knew. We prayed before our meals. We were in church um, as as the doors were open and all that sort of stuff. It was so familiar to me, mostly because of the tenacity of my mom to make sure her her children, her family, were going to be raised in church and keep their eyes on the Lord. And uh, so I'll always be, I don't get to say this publicly to embarrass her. You want to see someone's face go red. Um, because of her strength in that area, we were all made so much uh, better for it. So, uh, but because of that, praying before a meal was so common to me. And I remember at some point being, I don't know, overworked or overwhelmed or something like that and all this stuff. And I just praying throughout the day and counseling this and that. And I remember kind of complaining to my wife going, the, the prayer before a meal just seems so contrived. It seems so forced. Like, I, thank you, God, for blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, I wanted the prayer to, to feel like I was engaged in it. And she just simply said, so, okay, so the next time the kids don't say thank you for what you give them, you'll be okay with that, right? No. <clears throat> So I had to understand that no matter what I felt in connection, it was the right practice and heart attitude for me to come to my Lord and say, Lord, thank you for what you've given us. And I've never forgotten that. And I think about it just about every time that we pray together. So that's an important thing. And why I'm asking this is what opportunities do you take? And and let me just push this drive by guilting just a little bit further where there's a dad in the family I would ask you dads to consider taking the mantle with not that you're the only voice that can be heard. And sometimes mom can pray and the kids can pray and all that sort of stuff. But nothing is more powerful than when dad takes the lead on these things. And the bigger challenge that most of us guys don't like speaking up in those settings. We feel weird talking to somebody that we can't see in front of people that aren't really looking at us. And I don't know, we just make too big a deal about it. And sometimes it's just this great tone setter. I've been able to see families kind of get excited about the fact that one of the new practices they institute in their family is they they learn to hold hands with the kids and lead them in prayer just around something simple like the dinner table. This isn't what Jesus' point is, 
but it's an opportunity for us to stop by and make an application of it. Will your voice be heard at these important times? Will you, if Jesus can do it, if will your voice be heard saying, Lord, thank you for the bread that you've provided to us? So what happens? Verse 13, they gathered them up, all the leftovers, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. All four Gospels point out the number of baskets. When we don't think baskets like little lunch pail, think igloo cooler. That's kind of what's going on here. All four Gospels like us to know that there were 12 baskets left over. D.A. Carson points out that most scholars see provision for the Jews in this particular feeding. It's not a stretch to think that part of the imagery for having 12 baskets over is God's message to the children of Israel. I've got you. The redeemer that I come to, that I promised I would send, he is here and this is him and he has enough for you. Don't miss him. And then another occasion, there's a feeding of a slightly less number of people. And that seemed to be uh, equal in number to the, the uh, if you will, the picture of, of promise to the Gentiles, to the non-Jew. That this is a gospel hope that's available to all four corners of the world. The point of a miracle is never just the act of the miracle. It's what it says about the miracle maker. And this is why it's far better for us to ask God to use our response to his works rather than just to do something to make our lives better. God, I know you have the power, so could you just do it? I don't really want to deal with this right now, so just take it off my plate. I don't want to think about it. You've got the ability. Don't we get credit for trusting that he's got the ability? Yes, but can we abuse it by saying, don't show me the lesson, don't bring me through it? Just relieve me of the pressure. Last point as we wrap this up is that the impact of miracles remains our maturity. What is the impact? What's the fallout of this? Because Jesus is doing these miracles with people. He's not just saying, okay, everybody step aside. I got something to show you here. No, he's saying, hey, uh, uh, Philip, is there a Dunkin' Donuts nearby? Andrew comes up and says, I don't really know why I'm doing this. This is kind of Andrew's personality. He's always leading people just to meet Jesus. He's like, I'm not really sure what this means to us here, but this kid's got lunch. I don't know. I just felt like, Jesus, you should know about this. I don't know. Do something with it. I don't know. It's not like Andrew goes, this should take care of the problem. He just knows, you know how to fix problems, and this kid's got something. So he even says, but what's this amongst so many people? Or or let's not miss the fact that that little boy had a lunch prepared for him. As humble as it is, barley is like the poor man's lunch. The fish are not these big, you know, trout things. They're sardine kind of things. It's enough for a little boy. But not much more than that. Did his mom know she was packing his lunch for thousands of people? Not really. So all of this is happening uh, through human instrumentation that people get to participate, even the disciples getting to sit people down. And you could almost wonder if there was like a buzz going like, I don't know what he's going to do, but he said sit down. So just brace yourselves because this could be cool. How fun would it be to be Jesus hype man? You know, check it out. Here he comes. Here he comes. I'm just seeing if you're with me. Trying to be little hips off here. It would be a very easy but still relevant point to make how much of our little whatever, our small lunch offering, do we often doubt that God can do anything with? We always think that God only uses the talented or the beautiful or the whatever. And it's like, hasn't God proven that he tries to do the exact opposite to show his power? 
Maybe some of you needed to hear that this week, that all that you've doubted that God can do through your life or the simple offering that you have. But as you study the Gospels, as you study the history of God's dealing with mankind, you just see him shining through those moments over and over and over again. We need to be reminded of that. God does these miracles with the people, not just above them. God isn't interested in merely completing a task, but in bringing people along for the journey. But these miracles are also for the people. You and I get a stronger trust the more we see God show up. We're supposed to believe that he can do it again. Philip got a little forgetful of this, but we're all Philips from time to time. Philip needed another reminder of Jesus' power after witnessing wine and healing and all these other sorts of things. But God's power is meant to be a memorial in our lives, a memorial of faith that you and I can draw on from time and time again. That Because God did something big at one point means we're going to remember that. We're going to anchor our memory to that and go back to that from time to time. Not so that we can just live off of an old miracle like God doesn't want to do anything fresh in our lives. But so that we become convinced that if he did it once, he can do it anytime else he wants. And I don't have to keep going, well, God, keep showing me. You know, keep putting my fleece out if you know that scriptural reference or anything. I need you to prove it to me over and over and over again. God says, even I I did things even before your lifetime, I shouldn't have to prove myself to you. It should be enough for you. If I need God to keep performing miracles in order to remain faithful to him, then I'm clearly spending those miracles on my materialistic heart rather than a memorial for his greatness. So what are we saying? What's our simple challenge for this week? I would encourage you to train, to change your prayer emphasis. Of course, I'm encouraging you to pray, right? Didn't we say every preacher's bag of tricks? You need to read your Bible and pray more. So we, all we can come up with. But as you're praying, assuming that you are, and all of us pray prayers of desperation, and I think this is what hits the heart of that a little bit more. To change your prayer emphasis. Maturity is when we stop asking God to do what we want in any situation and instead ask what he wants from us. Am I saying that God doesn't care about your request or your plea for help? No. But so quickly after that, 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 that prayer for help or rescue or salvation in that sense needs to be, Lord, what would you prefer from my life? As I deal with this, whether you take it out or not, whether you remove me from the circumstances of the situation or not, Lord, what are you asking for me to shine for your glory and your goodness? We didn't get to this verse and we don't really need to, but the phony crowd wanted to use Jesus power for their politics. That's who we are. It's what we want to do. Instead of what he wants said and done and displayed about him, we go, hmm, this could work to our advantage. Let's see how we can use this. We can ask, Lord, what are you showing about you that you want others to see? And then the second thing I'd ask you to consider this week are what are the memorials of God's power that he's already done in your life? And will you start establishing those memorials, those anchor points that you can go back to when your faith starts sounding like Phillips and you're a realist, early or pessimist, that God can't do it? What are those memorials that you say, but I know he's a supernatural God. I know that he, he, he can blow away the natural order in order to accomplish his purposes. What are those practices? What are those memorials, I should say, that you practice in going back to and rehearsing the goodness and the blessings of God? 
I'm going to ask if you'd stand and join me in uh, prayer as we close our time out, prepare our, our hearts and our voices for worship. And Lord, I just want to thank you, God, for what you do in your word. I thank you, Lord, for all of the teaching that we've received in different forms this morning already. What a re- an encouraging, refreshing time it is to be in the house of the Lord that we hear from so many voices that are committed to you, that are following you and care about the direction of your people. And so, Lord, I thank you for those contributions. I thank you for patient and listening hearts. But, Lord, I thank you most of all for your spirit who dwells within us, gives us the ability to do the things that we think are impossibilities. So, Lord, I just pray that you would be pleased with our dedication to you. But, Lord, be our dedication when we can't be it for you. And we thank you in Jesus' name.